All right, everybody, glad to see you all tonight. Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. We left off last week having finished verse 12, so we'll pick up right there. Daniel 1, verse 13. So, um, last week, of course, we introduced the book, which we won't do that again, and then uh, we just barely started the study, and really all we got into was kind of Daniel's own introduction to the material. The chapter 1 really just serves to kind of show us what happened um, to this select group of Judeans after um, Nebuchadnezzar took uh, his first wave uh, of captives out and put them in exile. Daniel was among them, along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, a trio of fellow Jews we'll read about. They're not called Jews yet, but we'll read about them um, in a couple of chapters more, more in more detail. But they're, they're mentioned here and there, and especially here in this beginning, because what we have here in chapter 1 is the need now to take these foreigners from the Babylonian perspective and integrate them properly into this Chaldean culture. They've got to look the part. They've got to talk like Chaldeans. They've got to look like Chaldeans. They've got to dress like Chaldeans. They have to speak the language of the Chaldeans. They have to eat the food of the Chaldeans. They have to do all these things because if some outsider comes in to greet and meet the king, Nebuchadnezzar, in his court, you want the people who are attending to the king you know, to, to blend in, but if they should be noticed, they should look like the very best attendance a king could ever have because Nebuchadnezzar would want nothing but the best for himself. And so you have to make these people who very infamously have their own um, idea of what a person should look like, talk like, dress like, sound like, eat like. The Jews were their own little bubble. Even, even in all their paganism and so forth and all the lax way they got about that, they still had their own very idiosyncratic kind of culture where they didn't eat certain foods and they had to take certain days off and they observed moon festivals and things that no other culture did. So you got to break these people in to your Chaldean culture. And so that's where we are right now. And one snag has already come up. And that is the fact that the Babylonian cuisine that these Judean children, these young boys are in particular expected to abide by, um, involves food that's against, against the law of Moses. And so Daniel basically goes to the guy whom the king put in charge of the, this process of getting these um, transplanted people up to snuff and able to work in his court. The, the, the King James calls him the prince of the eunuchs. Um, but really it's just like this, the guy whose job it is to make these slaves into proper um, servants, if you will, uh, of the king. So Daniel goes to him and says, I'm not eating this food. Which, first of all, that's just the, the, the chutzpah of this kid to do that. Because you are an exiled servant. Your people lost the war. His people won the war. Who are you to make any demands? I mean, not, he's not asking for the moon, by the way. He's not asking to be set free or anything like that. He's just saying, I don't want to eat this food. I would rather eat a lesser kind of food, which is the godly response to a situation like that. I would rather diminish myself just so I can maintain my religious purity than uh, defile myself by eating the king's food the king's uh, meat. So that's our condition. That's our problem. And if he left it at that, you're not winning that argument. You know, I'm the boss. You're the servant. In a literal sense, you're the servant. You're going to eat what we give you to eat, or we're going to cut off your head. But Daniel offers a proposal. Now, it helps that Daniel, in this short amount of time, has already endeared himself to this guy. He does, he's not given a name in the Bible. Uh, Mazar, I think, is maybe what your Bible calls it. That's not a name. That's a title. So the Mazar, or the guy in charge. Um, 
he's already kind of not made friends with him, but he's already showed himself to be a young man of great virtue, a young man of, of great character and high acclaim. So it's someone that naturally your boss likes you. They're going to give you a little more leeway than they would if you were just not a good worker. That is just a universal trait that we see here borne out in this faraway culture, in this faraway time, in this faraway land. Um, because Daniel was already exhibiting godly traits, the Mazar is just a mashed up um, confection of peas and beans and just, you know, cheap vegetables. We're just going to smush them up, make a paste, and that's it. That and water. We're not going to eat or drink anything else because I don't want to eat the king's defiled food that's against my religion, but I don't want to be that much of a problem maker, troublemaker, so I'll eat this this slop. I'll eat this lowest common denominator, barely should even be called a meal, meal. Let me just eat that. And if after 10 days of just eating that, if I don't look like you want your servants to look, if I you know, have dark bags under my eyes and I'm all sickly and pale and you know my skin is all gray, if I just don't look good, then okay, we'll, we'll go from there. Probably then you can cut off my head because I'm still not going to eat the king's meat, but we'll see what happens. That's what Daniel proposes, and that's where we pick up, all right? Verse 14. The Mazar consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. That's the verse is just what I just said. Here's your ten days. You get three square meals, and in this case, they're not even square. They're just these three puddles of slop. And you're going to eat that, and let's see what happens. I just want to double down real quick on the bravery already that we're seeing. It's a small thing. But it shows you the character. You, you see a person's character in the little things. Because you may have three big moments in your life, but you'll have 10,000 little things. right? You'll have 10,000 little opportunities to show who you really are. Here is a little thing that Daniel could do. It would be a little thing. It would be a minor thing for Daniel to just shrug and say, well, I'm in exile. I'm in Rome. Do as the Romans do, proverbially speaking. So I'll eat the, I'll eat the food. But he's not even going to give on this little thing. So you know he won't give on the big thing because his character is already established here. And the fact that he's willing to tell his boss, I'm not eating that no matter what, says something. So let's see if God does him good. Verse 15. At the end of the ten days there, that's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, maybe anyone else who joined them, but at least those. Their countenances appeared, the King James says, fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children that did eat the portion of the king's meat. So here is where the providence of God kicks in, maybe even a minor miracle, because I can't imagine someone eating for a week and a half just a small helping of mashed up peas and carrots, as Forrest Gump would say, and water. And that's it. That's all you get for 10 days, and you come out looking fairer and fatter than everyone else. Well, I mean, literally more handsome and more plump than the people who ate the king's food, which you know was more robust. And yet they did. If There's basically three possibilities here, okay? Possibility A, they eat this food and they look sickly and small and frail and they just don't look the part at all. In that case, you lost the bet. You got to eat the king's food or die. Possibility B, there's no difference at all. They don't look any different one way or the other, in which case it's a coin toss. It's up to the Mazar. It's up to him to say, well... Nothing changed. We're going to keep doing how we've always done it. Based on the way people always are, that's probably what he would have said. Or possibility C, which is the more outlandish, the more extreme, the more you'd think impossible solution, which is they come out of this looking not just okay, not just as good, but they come out looking the best of everyone. You cannot conclude anything else other than God must have had a hand in this 
Because you can't feed teenage boys just mushed up peas for 10 days and then coming out not complaining and looking terrible. And that's what happens here. So look what happens. Verse 16. The Mazar took away their portion of the meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. That is to say, from now on. He said, well, I'm not going to feed you the king's food then. I mean, why would he? The only reason he would insist upon it is just out of stupid stubbornness. Just, just a slave to tradition at that point. When they have now proven that by eating pulse, they look better than everyone else. And his whole job is to make these guys look as good as possible for the king. Because he's about to come in and do his big inspection, Nebuchadnezzar is. And if the kids turn out all right, then he gets a promotion. He gets a raise. He gets a pat on the back. He gets something. So why would I not keep doing what works? Smart. Logical. Of course. It, it, the very fact that Daniel did it like this, that he framed it like this, shows how smooth and slick he is. Because if he had just, if he'd gone about this the wrong way, as some of my brethren do when they encounter a problem like this, you're in, a, you're in a situation where the world is trying to push you to do something that you feel is against your religion or that is against your religion. And you know you, know you should take a stand. But there's a wrong way to take a stand and there's a right way to take a stand. And the wrong way makes you come out looking like a jerk. The wrong way makes you come out looking like a, just an obstinate, difficult person. The wrong way makes you look like someone who doesn't love their neighbor. The right way leads to the, the laws and the people who are pressuring you in the first place to back off. And Daniel goes about this the right way. He offers a solution, a, a small 10-day trial, and he says, if it doesn't work, then we'll go from there. But it'll work. Give us a chance. And he's going to do the exact same thing in the next chapter when his life is on the line. All right. So verse 17. As for these four children, that's Daniel and the three, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So let's just assume you have these four in particular. These were the four who did the 10-day trial. These were the four who put themselves on the line, you know, to see if it works. And it worked. They were, let's not say rewarded, they were allowed, given permission by Babylon to keep doing what they were doing. But the whole thing sprang because they had more love for God than they did Babylon. They had more love for God than they did the ease and the comfort of blending in. They had more love for God than they did themselves because you know you can just guess what would have happened to them if they had just obstinately refused and didn't even offer an alternative. It's off with their heads. They had more love for God than anything else. It worked out, and so God blessed them. He blessed them in what way? Verse 17 again. He gives them all knowledge and skill in learning and wisdom. He gave these four who are going to be tested and proved and and you know, made to conform to the culture and the society, to, to look the part. He gave them the tools and the means to, to be the best. Because all the meal thing has done is made them physically healthy and physically look the part without eating the king's food. But they've still got to know the language. They've still got to, you know, take down the nose. They've got to be able to write. And they've got to do all the things that you would, you would need the king his, his aides to do. And God gives them the tools to do all of that. And then for Daniel, a little something, something, a little something extra. Daniel had, the King James says, understanding in all visions and dreams. I wonder if that's going to come in handy on two different occasions in this book. We'll see. Verse number 18. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs, that's our guy in the bazaar, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So if you remember, this was last week, it was supposed to be a three-year process. 
where they adapt and they learn the language, the Chaldean writing and the speaking, uh, and they learn all the customs and the rules and things they're supposed to do. So it's at the end of that whole process now. For that whole time, Daniel has been eating pulse and drinking water. He's been doing nothing. Now, I have a hunch, because of some circumstances going to happen, he's going to find himself in a better position. He'll probably find a way to have a better diet that still is, you know, uh, amenable to the law of Moses. But for at least three years, while he's in this period, he is just eating pulse and drinking water. And instead of wasting away, instead of growing sickly, let's see what he looks like after this process. Again, verse 18. At the end of the days that the king said he should bring these eunuchs in, Daniel and the three and the others, then the prince brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens, verse 19? And the king communed with them, the King James says. The king got spent some time with them, got to know them, you know, talked to them, got a feel for them. Whatever the process is, the Bible doesn't give the specifics, but that's how it's summarized. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they stood before the king. So you've got, obviously the narrative is focusing on Daniel and these three. But there were a lot of people brought in, a lot of people going through this trial. Presumably, these four were the only ones to, to follow the diet that Daniel proposed. Everybody else is just conforming left and conforming right. And so now they all are brought in. And Nebuchadnezzar examines all of them, and without any clue, it's not like the guy nudged him and said, these four had a special diet. No, no. He brought them, he discovered them, he's bringing them to the king. That's all he's got to do. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to evaluate them, and it's not luck. It's not random chance. It is the providence of God and all that he has done for them that he finds, Nebuchadnezzar does, these four as a cut above all the rest. That's just, that's how providence works. Miracles is here's this impossible thing and God instantly makes it possible. Here's this thing that cannot be done and God makes it done. Here's the thing that cannot be and God makes it be. Providence is not in front of you. Providence is behind you. Providence is you stop and you think, how did I get here? And you look back and you see the road and you realize, well, yeah, I took this turn. I followed this path. And you know, just it's like I, I asked God way up here, tell me where I need to go. Lead me where I need to go. And I made these decisions and I had this good advice given me along the way. And it just felt right to do this. And I ended up exactly where I needed to be, even if I thought I was going to go here. Maybe I even asked to go here. And I'm all the way here. And I look back and I realize that was God's providence. It wasn't that God yelled, turn left. Or that God put a giant roadblock in the way. It's just that through natural things, not supernatural things, God leads me where he needs me. And he puts me where I ought to be. Now, I can resist that. I can defy that. I can be obstinate and stubborn. But if you trust and listen, God will take you where he wants you to go. And you'll look back and you'll say, I'm sure glad that you were the shepherd here. And I followed you. That's providence. These four are looking at it and they're saying, our situation and this terrible condition is about to improve exponentially. To whom do we praise? The Lord. Verse 21. So, oh, sorry. Um, I missed, I skipped the verse. Verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in the realm. Verse 20. Is that what your Bible says? Uh, let's break a couple things down. In all matters of wisdom and understanding. If you remember a few verses ago, how did God bless the four? He gave them the means to have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So it's paying off, right? And all of that, as the king inquired of them, however this process of evaluating them was done. I don't know. Questionnaire they had to fill out or what? Uh, I just I think of like the Triwizard Quest or some Triwizard Tournament or something. Because this is for magicians, you know. He found them all ten times better 
than all the magicians and astrologers. They were in his realm. I'm just kidding. They weren't real magicians like Harry Potter. They were all in hiding right now. So I don't know what the qualifications were. I don't know what the test was for him to evaluate them and say, yep, these guys are ten times better. It's probably, this is just me guessing, because Nebuchadnezzar, we'll find out, is a very eccentric person. He's very prone to very extreme uh, reactions. He probably just blurted out, ten times better. And nobody was going to like, I don't know how to score that. Because he's Nebuchadnezzar and he'll cut off your head. So he said, ten times better it is. And they marked him. The point is, he found these four the best of them all. And why is that? Because God. And that's the position they started. And then the, Daniel, the writer by inspiration, jumps you all the way in verse 21. Daniel continued in his position as an aide to the king, working in the king's court beyond Nebuchadnezzar, beyond even Babylon, all the way into the reign of Cyrus the Great. And to the King James says, into the first year of King Cyrus. But I would just point out, in case you're keeping score or following along or reading ahead, Daniel does not die in the first year of King Cyrus. I don't even think Daniel quits working in the first year of King Cyrus because he at least references the third year of King Cyrus in chapter 10. So I think what he's saying here is, here's where I started in Nebuchadnezzar, and I will go all the way to the beginning of the reign of Cyrus. He, he won't see the end of that reign, but he will at least see the beginning. And what do you call the beginning of a king's reign? The first year of his reign. They mark calendars by the reigns of kings. We just mark it by the king of kings today, 2021. But back then it was more person by person. So mark the calendar all through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And then when the next king, king came along, all through his reign. All the way to the beginning of the reign of King Cyrus. I was there. God kept me and God protected me all through all of that. By the way, Cyrus took over Babylon in 539 B.C. So we are decades away from that. And yet here he is identifying him. Here he is identifying not just his own faith, but he's even calling out Cyrus by name before Cyrus is even born. You're going to be reading this. Just like Isaiah does. Alright, that's chapter 1. Any, um, any comments or questions before we go to chapter 2? Yes, sir. I think you probably find it's like, you know, the Old Testament we know is full of information about uh, medical things that would be healthy, ways to live, ways to eat. I think this is another one of them. I think pulse and water, I think obviously it's healthy. I don't think it's... I don't want to say it. I know what you're saying. But I think it was actually vegetables. Sure. You know, it was a healthy diet yeah. that he had them eat that God, that, that these people ate, which if we knew what it was, we could probably eat it right now and be healthier. You know, most of God's plan always was the advantage of people. Yes, you're right. And that's what this was. It was an advantage that God had taught his people like he did several different things. You know, yes. Yeah, 100% right. I would just, I would only just say it, it wasn't in defense of meat. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't like the Jews were forbidden from eating anything tasty because they, they ate lamb every Passover, you know. Uh, but it was the way the Babylonians cooked their food, the way the king preferred it, that that was illegal. So Daniel said, Instead of giving me an alternative, I would rather have the lesser. So he picked the least amount of things. Still edible, still, you know, nourishing. But um, he deliberately chose something that was the least common denominator, the lowest thing. So I think that speaks to his, his character as well. But yes, very good point. All right, Daniel 2. So if you remember, I'm not going to redo the whole chart. We had the, 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 um, the chart, the circles, right? And so the beginning of Daniel and the end of Daniel form kind of a cohesive unit. Going into exile and prophecies about coming out of exile. In the middle of those rings, or going more into the middle, you have uh, visions of the kingdom in chapter 2 and then in chapter 
9 through, um, 7 through 9. So, chapter 7. 2 and chapter 7 give you the visions of, of um, the kingdom. And that's what we're going to get here in chapter 2. Most people associate Daniel chapter 2 with the famous vision of Nebuchadnezzar with the statue and the mountain. We'll get there, but probably not until next week because that's several verses away. There's a whole big buildup that we have to appreciate as we go there. So let's dive right in. And we'll see as we go through this buildup another opportunity for Daniel to show his character uh, as a man of God. Daniel 2 verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Right immediately off the bat, someone is going to question this and say, I thought the whole trial period of the eunuchs was three years long and that's over. So why are we now in the second year? That's a year ago. But no, we're actually five years into this because Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a period of time as a co-regent with his daddy, Nebuchadnezzar. They both were considered the king and history would record them both as kings. But then Nebuchadnezzar takes over full-time, and now we're in the second year of his reign as a full-time ruler. And in that time, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, the King James says, which is just your classic way of saying he wasn't just having a nightmare. This is a vision from God. Wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him, the King James says. He woke up and he could not go back to sleep, at least not that evening. So just one minor thing before we move on. It's just something to appreciate. Here's a guy who for all intents and purposes, is the most powerful person he will ever think of on the planet Earth. And, until he gets conquered. Right? Well, until he dies. Um, there, there will never be someone, as long as Babylon is the top banana um, empire, there will never be someone more important than the guy at the top of that pyramid. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. But even he has bad dreams, and they freak him out. People are people. It doesn't matter what your situation and what your station is. People are people. And when you get a bad dream, you wake up in a cold sweat. That doesn't go away with your power and influence and money or authority. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He has a bad dream. It freaks him out, and he wants answers. Verse 2. So the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dreams, and they came and stood before the king. I'm curious if your translation gives these names, these guys, um, different titles. Mine, again, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, Chaldeans. Does anybody have a different list there? Enchanters instead of astrologers? Conjurers. Conjurers instead of magicians? No, magicians and conjurers. Oh, okay, and so that's instead of astrologers. Um, does everybody say sorcerers? Does everybody say Chaldeans? The ESV does. The ESV does? Okay. So um, different offices, they do different things, but they basically, they're basically subgroups of the same you know position. They, they are at the beck and call of the king. They all claim by some divine power of whatever gods they want to you know, claim um, that they can exhibit, they can give great wisdom or they can uh, divine, and I use that with a little d, they can give insight from a spiritual source. Some of these guys, they would um, do the modern equivalent of a palm reading, just the most lowbrow Madame Cleo kind of nonsense. Some of them would look up in the stars and they would you know, read whole messages. Madame Cleo, that's a dated reference, but if you remember, Madame Cleo was a big thing like 20 years ago. 
So whatever, Lord. So they would look up at the stars, some of them would, and they would they would interpret divine messages from the gods because they believed the gods would write messages in the stars and you would examine them to find, you know, answers to questions. Some of them would just as as we're gonna encounter here, to their detriment, they would hear you tell them dreams and stories and visions and things, and they would say, Well, here is what that means. It, it represents this, and it's almost always if you're a king, something good, and it's almost always if you're a peasant, something bad. Funny how that works. And they, that's what they would do for a living. And they would just basically go to the king and flatter him a little bit, schmooze him a little bit, tell him what he wanted to hear, and go back and eat their grapes and drink their wine. Well, it's all going to come crumbling down in the most schadenfreude kind of way as we go through this. But that's that list. I don't have a big you know, explanation for each one of these offices, uh, but you got people who work with illusions and trickery. You have people who look at the stars. You have people who basically do palm readings. And you have people who claim they have wisdom and divine insight. Verse 3, the king calls them all together. Now, I don't know how many there are, but the king, let's just imagine, let's use our visuals, our imagination. He's sitting on his throne. He's got his whole court before him, and he's got just this crowd of his top guys, his crack squad, his team of wizards, okay? Verse 3, and he says to them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit, the King James says, my inner feelings, my, my anxiety, and, my, and I'm troubled. My anxiety has, has swelled up. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. In other words, I got this unsettled feeling, and it's not going to go away until I know what I dreamed. And we'll find out in a second what it means, that what I dreamed. So, I mean, everyone is familiar. I don't need to spoil it for you. You know what he dreamed. We're going to talk about it next week. Um, but think of it. Keep your mind from his perspective, okay? He has had this dream nightmare from his perspective. It's really a vision from God. It's bothered him. He doesn't remember the details. And he's expecting his people to do the one job that he's asking them, which is to give me the knowledge that I don't have. That's their one job. The king ought to know everything. But the king usually didn't know anything because he was just a pampered little you know, twerp from childhood who was just told things by these so-called wise men. So he's used to calling his wise men to tell him something new so that he can look smart when the other kings come to visit, right? When they have their king parties, whatever they do. I don't know. I'm not a king. So... He calls it all together, and he says, all right, it's time to do what you're, you're called to do. Put up or shut up. I have a dream. I don't know it. You're the people who tell me what I don't know. So his request in his insane mind is very rational. Tell me what I don't know. Tell me this dream that you don't know. Tell me what it is, and tell me what it means. Now, you're the wizards. You're the crack squad. You have heard dreams before. People have come to your tent, and they've you know, touched your crystal you know, ball, and you've held their hands, and you've done the whole thing. And they told you the dream, and you spat back at them whatever nonsense you want to spew to get their gold coin from them. But no one's ever come to you and said, I'm thinking of a number between one and infinity. What is it? Or I'll cut off your head. And the spoiler alert, that's about in about five verses what's coming. Okay? So they, they're not prepared for this, is what I'm saying. There's no school for that. Verse 4. The Chaldeans said to the king, the King James says in Syriac. Does your Bible say that? Aramaic. Aramaic. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the Aramaic language. They say, speak to the king in Aramaic, and they say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Yeah, I bet you will, because that's the easy thing to do. They start with the flattery, which you have to do. Daniel's going to do it himself. When you go to the king, you got to prostrate. you got to you know, bow down and get a schmooze him. you got to say, oh, you're the greatest ever. So they do all that. They get that out of the way, and now it's down to brass tacks. Tell us the dream. We'll be happy to tell you the interpretation. Maybe it's something written in the stars, and these guys can do it. Maybe it's something written on your palm, and these guys can do it. Maybe it's something written in the clouds, and these guys can do it. 
Maybe it's just something that it's just a matter of, uh, of understanding, and these guys can interpret it for you. But whatever it is, we got the team. Tell us what you dreamed, and we'll give you the interpretation. Well, as I say, it sounds like a simple request until you stop for three seconds and think, anybody can do that. Like, does anybody right now in this room, does anybody remember a dream they had last night or recently? Yes, ma'am, I want to hear it. We all want to hear it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't laugh. We don't know what it is yet. Sometimes it just really, I, I guess it's just things that happen during the day and they kind of get scrambled uh -huh. and they get into a dream. And, um, but right now it, it's left me what I've really dreamed yesterday. Nebuchadnezzar will say the but same thing, by the way. But you know, <laughs> Except you're not going to kill us. You, it looks like he's asking them to tell the dream yes. and then interpretation. Yes, he is. So if these guys are real magical, they're supposed to figure out what that dream was. Yeah, that's the rub. And they're not real magical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you have something, Abby? It's an oddly specific dream. In case the camera didn't catch that, Lexi wrecked the car. Okay. This was just a dream. All right. Am I the only one who has the recurring dream where you're going up and down the hills and then it gets a little more out of control until you just sail off it and crash? I, I, I think that because I, I study dream interpretation, there's a whole there's a whole thing about it. I'm not saying I, I call my wise men and divine or anything, but you can study dream interpretation. That one, the hills that get bigger until you sail off, is a sign your life is spiraling out of control. I don't know if that means anything, but there it is. I think it means you t have too much on you and you got to relax. But well, if you dream of water a lot, too, it's about purification. And if you dream about water a lot, you'll pee in the bed. So. <laughs> <laughs> Lessons to know. All right, so listen, if you had, if you, okay, that dream about her wrecking the car never happened, right? Not, not real. I mean, you had the dream, but it never actually happened. Okay, but it clearly, your subconscious is telling you you can't trust her, right? <laughs> Do you see how easy that is, what I just did? Okay? Now, that's nothing. Anybody can do that. So all they need, all they need is just a nugget. All they need is just something to work with. And probably they're thinking, what if he does remember the dream, and this is just the mother of all pop quizzes, and he wants to know if we really are ma magical, if we really are wise, if we really are divine, what if he knows exactly what he dreamed and we say something entirely different? Then he's going to know we're frauds. you got to think that's running through their mind, too. So they're not going to answer anything until they get something. So they say, King, you're the best. Tell us what you dreamed. We'll tell you the interpretation. And let's see how Nebuchadnezzar handles that. Verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar says to the Chaldeans, that group before him. Now, it's going to get, we're going to have to get technical in the translations here. I'll tell you the King James says, the thing is gone from me. All right? And then he keeps going. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. That's the King James. Does everybody's Bible say dunghill? What does your Bible say? Torn limb from limb. Torn limb from limb? That's yeah. a very loose translation, but that comes the, the idea. Torn limb from limb and laid in ruins. Laid in ruins. I like Rubbish dunghill more. Hmm? Yeah, Rubbish heat. Rubbish dunghill. Yes, same thing. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to the beginning of this verse, though. All right, I want to stop for a second because there are two very different interpretations. You, it's one of those things where this happens a lot when you study the interpretation of the Bible. You have a verse, okay? I'm not going to type anything or write anything, just a verse. And you'll have two very different interpretations about that verse. And whatever it is, they usually both will end up at the same place. All right? It's when they don't that you have to stop everything and figure out what the Bible is really saying. But sometimes it's just two different interpretations that will lead you to the same truth. And that's what happens here, all right? 
There's a phrase that appears here that if you're an older translator, like medieval time, early, like Bishop's Bible, Tyndale Bible, Old King James Bible, those translators working with the Texas Receptus, those first discovered manuscripts, or more modern translators, your NIVs, your New American Standards, your American Standards, working from the Texas Sinaiticus, they're going to have two very different interpretations of this phrase because words change meaning over time and context varies. So, again, the phrase is... The thing is gone from me. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say? It's right after the king answered and said what? The word for me is firm. What Bible do you have? English Standard. Yep, New King James says that too. What? That makes sense? Huh? The command for me is firm. Same thing. Is anybody, am I the only schmo here with an old King James? That's fine. It's fine. Uh, it, 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 depending on your era, you're going to get the translator. In fact, the, the translation is pretty sound in the, in the old King James. They didn't bother to interpret it. But they, it was believed by later translators and later interpreters that it's too vague. But here's what he's saying, so we're just going to put it that way. And I think they're right, but I, just, I don't like that they just assumed and just stuck it in there. I'd rather let me have the interpretation and you just give me the text. But there's two different interpretations. The thing that's gone from me can mean one of two things. It can mean A... I don't know what the dream was. It has left me. It's up to you to tell me. Or the command that I just said that I'm going to chop you up into Chaldean hash and burn down your homes and murder your family, that, that, that thing has now left my lips, therefore it's going to be done. So you better get it right. It could be one of those two things. We're going to end up at the same place, but those are two very different interpretations, and they kind of change the way you view Nebuchadnezzar during the early part of this period. Is he just a frustrated guy who can't remember a dream? Or is he just this insane maniac king who is prepared to start chopping heads until he gets the impossible before him? And we, where, how quickly does he jump to that extreme? Because he's going to get there in just a second. But is he jumping there now or is he just expressing frustration and taking it out on these guys because they can't do the job? The thing is gone from me. The command has left me and it's said and it's done. It's going to happen if you don't follow it. Or I just don't remember the dream. It's two very different interpretations of the same phrase, Mila Azad, in the original language. What it means is kind of lost. He didn't yes, tell ma'am. him what was going to happen, though, until after he made that statement. What do you mean? He didn't say, um, the thing is gone from me. He said that Yeah, first. you're right. You're right, but it's all in the same con. It's all in the same breath. He's saying, here's the thing that I'm saying, and, okay. and what I'm saying is I'm going to kill you if you don't get it right. And now that I've said it, that's it. I'm not, no take backs, is basically what that phrase means, as it's interpreted there. Um, I'm going to pronounce it, and once it's pronounced, it cannot be unpronounced. And I actually believe that's what he's saying here, because it fits his character in the next couple of verses. But, um, and especially, look at the next verse, because he's going, to, he's going to say, I'm going to brutally kill you and your whole household if you don't get this right. But, verse 6, glass half full, if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you get gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. And I can just imagine, I can only imagine how he said it. You know, I'm going to murder you and you're burn your house down. Or I'll give you a gift. Now give me the dream. You know, and if I'm the wise man, I'm thinking, can I just do neither? Can I just take a sick day, you know, and just, I don't need the blessing, but I don't want the other one. Can I just, no, you're here, the doors are locked. What did I dream and what does it mean? You get gifts and honor if you get it right. Which, by the way, they'll come into play. Because, spoiler alert, Daniel's going to get it right. But we'll see. So they answer again. 
And they say, and what do you say if you don't have anything to say? You say what you've already said. Verse 7. They say, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. It's pleading. Please, please, just give us something to work with and we'll give you the interpretation. But the king doesn't just want the interpretation because the king doesn't know what he dreamed. He's not. They may have thought it, but he's actually not just testing them. The inspired record says he doesn't know what he dreamed. So he doesn't know. He doesn't remember. God gave him the vision. God gave him the vision. God designed it to be this certain way where he would wake up with only the anxiety of it and not the memory of it. Where he would just wake up with the bad feeling with this feeling of doom hanging over him and this need to get it resolved. He gave him that feeling and now he wants the answer. And these, I almost call them poor guys, but they're hucksters and frauds so they're not that poor and they're pagans more than that. But you still, you almost want to feel bad for them because he's asking the impossible, which they're about to say. So look at verse number eight. Oh, did I skip a verse? Um, no. Verse seven, again, they say, tell us the dream. Verse eight. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would, the King James says, gain the time. I know right now you're stalling. That's why you said it again. Just tell us the dream and we'll give the interpretation. I know you're stalling. Probably right now you're trying to think of something clever. I know you're just stalling because you see the thing is gone from me. Now again, I know you're stalling because you know I can't remember it. You're trying to come up with something. Or you're stalling because you know I'm going to kill you if you don't get it right. Either way, we're going to end up in the same place. But how you interpret that phrase changes how the scene is played out. Either way, he says, I know you're stalling. I know you got nothing because you know I don't have anything except the threat to kill you. Verse 9. But if you will not make known to me the dream, there is but one decree for you. At which point Nebuchadnezzar does this thing. Everyone look. He does one of those. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. I don't know if this thing started like a pop quiz, but it has now become a pop quiz. I don't know if this started as, you know, um, an evaluation or just if this became the measuring stick of whether they can do the job at all, but it has quickly devolved into that. It has morphed into that where... If you can't do this, clearly you can't do anything. So your job is on the line. Your head is on the line. You better answer the question, what did I dream and what does it mean? And yeah, the Caleb, yes, ma'am. They could just make anything out. Why don't they just make something out? Okay. he doesn't remember it. You're absolutely right. But I think at first they didn't know that. Okay, I had to put myself in the shoes oh. of what do real people think? Okay, these are real yeah. people. The Bible doesn't give me the answer, so I fall back on how would a real person react. We're given some clues how would these people react. They repeated themselves in verse 7. So if they were going to come up with something, seven, verse 7 would have been the time, right? Yeah. If they were going to make something up, verse 7 was your very fast closing window, and they blew it, which means clearly they're not quick on their feet, okay? So that moment has passed. At this point, the king is going to know if they're lying. He's going to see right through that. Oh, I think you dreamed of a, a flower. No, he's going to know. No. My, your sister hit the car and crashed. No, he's going to know. He's going to know, all right? Verse 10. The Chaldeans answer before the king and say, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, or ruler that asks such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. There's a, it's, a, it's a fallacy in debate what they're doing, and I forgot what it's called. Um, it's not begging the question, but it's something like that. But what they're basically saying is, um, it's not fair. Your entire thing is not fair. No one else could do this, and so you asking this of us, breaks the rules 
There's supposed to be this unspoken agreement between the king and the fraud to work for him, which is you only ask us easy questions. Because when you ask us to give you the impossible, well, that's not fair. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, from his insane perspective, he's never been told no before, because he's always been a prince or a king. He's the ruler of the greatest empire the world has seen thus far. No one's telling this cat no. And here are these, these dudes, these guys, who are just saying to him, no. He doesn't care that he's asked for the impossible. Read my mind and tell me what it means. And they're looking at him like, what? what? You can't do that. And he's, well, I'm going to cut off your head if you don't. Like, that's going to make them suddenly do the impossible. You can't do it. But he's insane, Nebuchadnezzar is. Insane. And so he thinks, well, I'll just murder your whole family. And I'll murder everybody's family. That's a couple of verses away. I'm going to murder everybody until these people tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And they're just thinking, no one can do this. It's impossible. And you could have a thousand wizards and a thousand magicians and a thousand astrologers and a thousand soothsayers and a thousand palm readers and a thousand wise men come before you. And not a one of them, you could kill them all, and not a one of them afterward could ever tell you what you dreamed and what it means. I think the point is to say, so why even go through the HR headache of killing even us and having to hire someone else and bring them in just for the same result? It's probably what they're thinking here. But what they don't realize what they're doing is they are planting a seed in the king's mind by saying what you want is impossible. Now, he's probably not focusing on that, but in his subconscious, is planted the idea that if this, if this ever does happen, then it was by impossible means that it happened. And sure enough, it's going to happen, and it's going to be credited to God who does the impossible. But that's just a seed they're planting there. They're going to plant another one here in a second. Look at verse 11. It is a rare thing that the king is requiring of us. No one's ever asked this for his servants. And there is none other that can show it before the king. What do they say? Except the gods. Only our gods, who don't even deal with these sort of things, would do this. They tell us what to tell you, but not even they would give us the wisdom to read your mind and tell you what you say. Not even the gods could do this. Now again, they don't know what they're doing. They think they are arguing to the extreme which is a common debate tactic. Take your argument, take it to its most logical extreme. If that's not sound, the whole thing falls apart. You want the impossible. Not even the gods could do that. Therefore, this should not even be asked. Now, Alone's going to come, Daniel, and he's going to come in and do the impossible, and he's going to credit his God. And what's that going to do to the mind of Nebuchadnezzar? He's going to think, well, your God must be greater than my gods because my wisest people have said not even their gods can do this. Not even my gods can do this. So they are setting up their own gods to fail in the eyes of Jehovah, or in, in competition to Jehovah, and they don't even realize it. So again, they say, no one can ever ask this, because no one can do this except the gods who don't even deal with fleshly matters. And that leads you to the segue, verse number 12. For this cause, because they gave him that non-answer, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Not just these wise men, but every other wise man. Just kill all the wise men, he says. And I drew a little picture. Remember the mean. Kill all the wise men. That's his solution. Okay, because if these 40 guys can't do it, then the other 460 that I have around town, just cut them all off. Because if what they're telling me is true, then what's, what's the good of any of them? What, what can any of them do? Now, in that case, you should just fire them, you know, and let them become farmers or something. But no, we're just going to cut off all their heads. That's his solution. Well, you want to laugh, and you want to say, good, what do they deserve? They're, they're fakes anyway. Except, remember, who was hired to be one of the king's wise men? Verse 13. The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and so the slayers 
sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. He's one of them. Now, he wasn't in the king's court at the time, but it's on his resume. I am one of the wise men. And the guys doing the stabby stabby, they're not checking. They're not seeing who's who or reading their information and getting their background. They didn't read Daniel chapter 1. They don't know anything about him. They just know Daniel, wise men, stab. Hananiah, stab. So that's the situation he finds himself in. Verse 14. He comes to Daniel. And Daniel answers with counsel and wisdom to Arioch. That's the guy who came, the captain of the king's guard, who has gone forth to slay the wise men in Babylon. Now, this would have been a really good time for Daniel just to run. This would have been a good time for Daniel to fight, you know, to steal a sword and try and kill, to get out of the situation. But what does Daniel do? He doesn't run. He's not bitter. He's not angry. Characteristics you'll never hear of Daniel in this whole book. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get angry, though he's keep, he keeps having bad situations thrown at him and he never buckles he never bends he never says why is this so hard he never grumbles he just keeps on doing what is faithful and right and he hasn't done anything wrong and the king wants to kill him because none of the wise men can do the impossible and daniel thinks i have a god who can do the impossible what's the problem let's talk about this he answers verse 15 and says to Ariok, the king's captain why is the decree so hasty from the king in other words why is he so quick to kill us all he hasn't interviewed me why is the decree so hasty that Arioch made the thing known to Daniel? That is to say, he told him everything that happened about the wise men and not being able to know and the insanity of the king and the stabby-stabby order. What was Arioch's mistake here? Classic movie villain mistake. He monologues. He could have, he could have just killed the, the hero, but the villain didn't. He stopped and he monologued. He explained the whole thing, told the whole story, and at that time he gave Daniel the chance to say, verse 16, well, I, I can tell him the interpretation. Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. We kind of, there's, there's not a verse there, but there's like a missing verse. You've got to fill in the blank between 15 and 16, where clearly Daniel said to him, wait a minute, are we just interpreting dreams here? Because back in chapter 1, God gave me the ability to interpret dreams. Didn't I tell you that would pay off? Here we are. I can interpret that dream. And the guy's like, well, yeah, but he wants to know what he dreamed as he's rearing back the sword. And Daniel's like, I can tell him that too. Come with me. Verse 16. Daniel goes in and desires of the king that he would give him time and he will show him the interpretation. So, what happens next? We have just a couple minutes. Let's try and catch up to when he gets to the court. Verse 17. Daniel went to his own house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Also not present. Also on the chopping block. Also going to be spared as, as a result of his work. Verse 18. He says to them that they would desire the mercies of God of heaven concerning this secret, that is to say the dream that nobody knows yet, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I want you guys to pray with me that God would reveal the secret to me so that we don't die. All right? And just to jump ahead, because we'll get there next week, he's obviously, you know, he's going to interpret the dream. He's going to be rewarded. He's going to be appointed to be the chief magician of the king's court. It's in, within his power to like fire all these guys who were below him but he doesn't and it's going to come up against him uh, later or his people later but anyway so he, he goes to them and he says pray now that God will give me the, the knowledge to do this that tells me something about the inspiration of God it's on God's discretion in other words Daniel is inspired but inspiration came to Daniel at God's will when Daniel needed to write the book of Daniel God inspired him and I don't think he just sat down and write it in one go, right? You read like Ezekiel, for example. He's writing at different stages of his life in different years. God inspires him, he writes, and then he's no longer inspired. 
Paul wasn't inspired when he wrote his grocery list, right? He wrote a whole letter to the Corinthians before he wrote 1 Corinthians. That wasn't inspired. It's not lost. It's not some great thing. The Bible is missing a book. It's just God didn't inspire that book. What God inspires, you have. So when Daniel needs to have the interpretation of the dream, God's going to give it to him when he needs to. But God still requires Daniel to ask for it. Okay? That's where I'm going to leave you. We'll get that next week. But Daniel still has to pray to God, give me this interpretation if it be your will. Because if he just walks in there arrogantly, I deserve this, I owe this, because God has given me this power, look how special I am, he's not getting squat, he's except losing his head. So he humbles to God, asks for help, give me this vision, and he's, as you know, going to be given it. All right. we'll, we'll pick up there next week in Daniel 2 and uh, read a very fun account. Thanks, you guys, very much.